0: Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism. What does not kill me makes me stronger. Dad, thank you for joining me on the first episode of this little experiment of mine called What Didn't Kill You? And it's uh, inspired in large part by the philosophy of a man we both admire, Friedrich Nietzsche, This notion of whatever doesn't kill you often makes you stronger and uh, found this to be the case across business, across life, uh, personal, spiritual, oftentimes pain, adversity, failure sets up uh, our growth, our development, our future successes. You've taught me that for a long time and they say, start with what you know. In this case, I'm starting with who I know. And so on that note, would love to start with asking you the question, what didn't kill you in your life? But specifically, I would love to ask about a story you told me the other day about the nature of monetizing your failures and how that sets you up for future success and how you learned that uh, at a relatively early age.
1: Well, knowing that you're a philosopher lover and uh, that's what you got your degree in college on college, uh, one of the philosophers that you introduced me to was a guy named Kierkegaard. And one of the many quotes of his that uh, have stood out with me is that uh, you learn about life looking backwards, but you have to live it moving forwards. And so if you really start thinking about that philosophy, as you get much older, as I am, you can look backwards and you can learn from the mistakes that you made. And from that, I've learned to postulate over the last uh, couple of decades that really the secret of success is learning from your failures. You can make the obvious failures uh, of a youth slinging dope or driving too fast uh, or uh, getting drunk and getting in a car. Those are just objectionable understandings that you basically did something really wrong. But most of life is not that simple. Most of life is very subtle, and it's the subtleties And the reality that you, when you make mistakes, you can't learn from them, that really define whether somebody is going to be, have a successful life or not, in my opinion. I suppose that takes me down a certain road of my own personal thought today of, are we preparing our youth of today to live this kind of life, to go out and realize that life's a brutal pace? That is life for everything, not just us. Life for life up in, yeah. in space, life in the ocean, life in everybody's life. Life in everybody's uh, life, I should say, as it relates to individuals living such, a, such an existence. And I strongly believe that tragedy befalls all of us. The reality is, though, that the other side of tragedy is humanity. And it's friends and family and people reaching out and helping and mentorship and teachers and trainers that help us get through life. But I'm concerned that as I look at the universities today, I see dramatic number of universities that are trying to protect the young men and women who come through these pedagogical institutions And instead of trying to educate and to explain adversity and allow adversity and differences of opinion, there's a proclivity for trying now to say to kids, come to my institution and I will protect you. Come to my institution and I won't let you be harmed by someone else's thought. Come to my institution and... Anything that is really objectionable to you, you won't have to be exposed to. That, I would say to you in my life, is what says we are setting up these young men and women for failure. Success in life, in my opinion, comes from failure. And from that failure, you learn to, in business, monetize those failures to become successful in interpersonal relationships Uh, Make your mistakes and try and make sure you don't make the same mistake twice or pick the same partner that maybe didn't work out the last time, the next time. And to also understand yourself, learn about yourself, look in the mirror and, and appreciate you have strengths and weaknesses like every human being does. And if you can learn to try and depend on your strengths and try and limit your weaknesses, I'm not suggesting you can make them go away you can't but if you can learn how to try and find that balance i think that that life can be far more successful and you can achieve far more whether it's person that wants to give to charity or help people that are sick or that want to mentor young men and women in in a business environment I believe fundamentally that that the relationship between those who want to help, train, mentor, and those that want to reach out and are willing to try and make the mistakes in life, or make the mistakes that come to that are going to lead to failure, those are the people that can become the most successful. And in a society that can't develop a strong and stable middle class. I think is, regardless of whether it's communistic, socialistic, it follows a democracy or whatever principles of socialization that it wishes to follow, if it cannot learn how to capture the mentorship, training, and teaching side of its society to help develop young men and women that are willing to to take risks, to fail, and to learn from those failures, I don't know how you build a middle class because otherwise you wind up with people that are very successful and people that are frightened and fearful of failure and therefore can't go out and achieve. And the middle class is created in societies because people are willing to achieve and develop. Whether it's in science or it's in philosophy or it's in medicine, it doesn't make any difference what, what part of a society you wish to involve yourself in.
0: I think it's interesting that we start talking about generational development and the encouragement of the next generation to go do things. One of the reasons I love having these types of conversations is I think oftentimes we lionize success uh, and successful people, but we, we don't often talk about the failures that set up their success or the adversity that set up their success. And you mentioned the importance of creating environments where it's okay to experience adversity. It's okay to experience failures. And we talk about this in observing families generationally. Uh, You mentioned it as a societal thing as well. How do you think you go about getting the next generation to embrace risk-taking and the possibility of failure and can you talk about a few personal instances in your life as you were a young man coming up and uh, times where you had to embrace adversity and it, and it set up the future for you?
1: I have been blessed in life by being able to have many mentors. Of course, I reached out and so I was able to find many mentors. And by the way, that's a fundamental principle, I think, of society. People don't appreciate how willing other people are to help and if you will reach out if you will ask you'll probably find in life that there are people willing to step up mentor help suggest educate teach train and i think that's a fundamental issue that people are shy about doing but that's a bit of a side of the point when i grew up i grew up as a desert rat in Southern California, out in the deserts of uh, Palm Springs in in the fifties, and it was by today's standards, I suppose, a, a tough environment. But by those standards then, it was fun. We all had paper routes, and uh, we all went to a middle class high school. It was a tough high school. It had its gangs. We had our fights. There was nobody around to protect you unless you had a big brother and so you took care of your own problems and from that environment i went on to college graduated from college right at the height of the vietnam war you realized that in that world young men and women went to college men realized when they graduated college unless they were married or they were teachers as i recall you got drafted and if you got drafted the odds were very strong you would be going to vietnam and, as our society now realizes, a quarter of a million people came back terribly injured from uh, vietnam and fifty seven or fifty eight thousand people never came home at all and So we lived in an environment in which uh in the sixties father and son and brother against brother uh, there were fundamentally a chasm in our society about whether we should be in Vietnam or we shouldn't be in Vietnam. As we all know from reading the history books, uh, I know because I lived it, it wound up uh, almost destroying this country. And in that environment, uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, not too long afterwards, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Nixon uh, was, we would say, politically, forcibly uh, removed from the White House. We had a period of 10 or 20 years that there were cataclysmic events going on in this country. And as a young man growing up in that time, I sometimes wondered whether we would survive. But we did, and we became a stronger nation. I would argue that the 80s, 90s, and 2000s have been the strongest time in the history of our country. But out of that world came men and women that led that charge. That, that have made this country what it is, both good and bad. But they were achievers. And I would say to you then that the vast majority of people that I knew made a lot of mistakes. And we made mistakes as a nation, and we made mistakes as individuals. But the art form of a society and the key, I think, is to be able to learn from those mistakes and then go out and make your success Because you did learn from them. Because now you know what not to do wrong. So in that environment, I was uh, growing up, I was fortunate in that I had a, a father who was wealthy and very successful. But he always trained me and educated me to treat everybody equally, no matter who they were. We grew up in Palm Springs, California. My father was in the film business. And so we had a lot of friends from Hollywood, actors and people that uh, wrote major Broadway musicals, uh, people that were producers, directors. And so those... And you had
0: one neighbor in particular that people always get a kick out of. Oh,
1: yeah. Cary Grant was my next-door neighbor. So I suppose you want me to tell you this... A funny, a funny story about him. as a brief
0: aside, if you wouldn't mind.
1: Okay, Cary Grant was one of many people that I knew that uh, certainly that period of time was very famous, and I knew him as a as a young teenager, and since we were next door neighbors, and he was a very approachable man, he would talk to us and talk to my father. I mean, they were friendly. We didn't socialize a lot together, but one day the the phone rang. I picked up the phone, and said hello, and Cary Grant said, "Is Susan there?" And Susie was my sister, and I said, "Yes, Mr. Grant, just a moment." And so Susie got on the phone and started talking, and she said, "Yes, Mr. Grant, yes, Mr. Grant, I can take care of that. Yes, Mr. Grant, okay, thank you, bye, click." And of course. Susie was probably 13 years old at that time, and I was probably 15. And I said, so Susie, what do Mr. Grant want? She said, I'm not going to tell you. I said, what do you mean you're not going to tell me? I want to know. She said, well, it's none of your business. So she was empowered now to go do something for Mr. Grant that I couldn't know about. So I, of course, did what any 15-year-old would do. I went to my father and said, I want to know what Mr. Grant said to Susie. So dad came in and said, oh, Mr. Grant called you? Yeah. What did he want? Well, dad, I don't want to tell Alan. Well, tell me. Well, he wants me. He, he saw a picture in the newspaper of my PE instructor, who's pretty, and wanted to know if uh, she would be interested in going out with him. And if she would, here's his telephone number. I said, oh. And of course, so my 13-year-old sister Fixed up her PE instructor, who was quite attractive, with Cary Grant, and they had a date. Well, this could be done in the in the fifties in Palm Springs, California, and we didn't think anything the different for it. It just was natural.
0: I love that story, but back I guess to the topic you mentioned the society you grow up in, and I think a lot of people in a younger generation today would say we're living in a stochastic environment. There's a lot of economic and social strife. There's strong political divides. So it seems to me there are a lot of parallels between then and now. What are the differences that make you more concerned about preparing young people today that uh, you think are markedly different from when you grew up?
1: I think at the sort of top of the broadcast, I, I I shared my only answer with you. I think we're failing are young men and women at the collegiate level by trying to protect them too much. This constant drumbeat of, oh my God, don't let the kid outside the house. Oh my God, you can't ride a bike to school. Oh, you can't. There's so many things you can't do to protect your children that I think that we are, I wouldn't go so far as to saying setting them up for failure, but in an effort to protect them from from loss, from pain, from from failure. We are not enabling them to be successful. I think over the next 10 years, we're going to pay quite a price for that. That's going to affect our society.
0: And I know you experience this with your peer group, people talk about their kids and grandkids, their careers, helping them along on their careers oftentimes in a business context. And I know there, it's a repeated mantra that you hear that it's hard to get people to think about risk taking or the fear of potential failure winds up immobilizing people. And certainly, you know, I, I see it in, in my peer group at times as well. How do you combat that? And how have you combated that in your past? Because I, I know we've discussed this. The the fear is always there. How, how do you overcome it? And when you do have the failures, how do you, how do you embrace them instead of walking away from them?
1: I would tell you a story that uh, among many of the people that I was uh, fortunate enough to get to know in Chicago, one was the A.M. Pritzker of the Pritzker family. And by the time I became socially friendly with him because I was friendly with Bob Pritzker, A. N. must have been 87 years old. And we were sitting at a cocktail party one day, and he's just sitting watching everybody. And I came over and sat next to him, and I I said... And could I ask you a question? Because I trying to think about my future and I I wanted to understand your point of view. And he said, sure, what can I help you with, Al? And I said, as I understand it, you gave money to your kids by the time they were 21. So they had substantial fortunes. And weren't you concerned that they dissipated or wouldn't know what to do with it or they'd lose the money that you made? And he said... Alan, you got one or two ways to do this in life if you want to give your kids money. You can give it to them at 21 or at a young age, and while you're still alive, try and help mentor them. Or you can wait till you're dead and give it to them way later in the hopes they might get mature enough not to dissipate it. So you take your own, you decide it yourself. I chose to do it so that I could mentor them while I was still alive. And that story never escaped me because I, it made so much sense to me. I just can't tell you. But most of my peer group tried to give the money to their kids when they were 40, 50, and 60. And I took the exact opposite point of view. And, of course, I think most people that have heard of the Pritzker family knows how they became so successful. And they made a lot of mistakes, but they also had tremendous successes. So my attitude or answer to your question is you you have to mentor and train your kids to learn how to take risks, to be comfortable with failure, but then you have to teach them how do you monetize the failure to go out into life and be a successful person, both economically, professionally, socially, and spiritually. Can you share a
0: time or two where You've had that in your own life, specifically business failures that set up future successes. Because I think as a younger person, failure can loom quite large when you're out taking risks. And until you've been through that process, leverage failure into future successes. It's hard to it's hard to get that perspective other than stories from mentors and and other people who
1: have done it. When my father was sick, he couldn't understand. Uh, back in the uh, late 60s, exactly what he had, but he thought he had some kind of a stomach ailment and it turned out he went into the hospital and uh, they said, look, uh, you may have stomach cancer, so we're going to have to do exploratory surgery to see what it is. So in those days, they didn't have the kind of cures that you have today and most people that got operated on for cancer simply were made as comfortable as possible and then they they died. Because there really wasn't a lot you could do. You could cut the cancer out, but generally it'll kill you six months later or whatever. So you sort of get your affairs in order before you go in for surgery, which is what my father did. And he sat my brother and I down and said, look, I want to leave you with one or two points. One thing I want to tell you is that family is everything. And if, you're fam- if you two and your sisters stay together, my mother had died by that time you can become successful. But if you are not, you don't stay together as a family, you can't. You'll fail. It kept resonating in my, my mind with another statement he said, which also resonated in my mind, which he said, and I know you won't understand much of what I'm saying right now, but I want you to know that when my eyes close, your eyes will open. And I said, oh, dad, you're being terribly model and, you know, you'll go in tomorrow and surgery will be fine, whatever it is, and we'll be good to go. Well, he went in the next day, had the surgery, it was cancer, and he stroked out after the surgery and, and never recovered, and died six months later. But those two things he left me with became mantras for how I would, or mental totems, if you will, that I would stay and kept close to me every time I was faced with a a challenge. Six months later, I uh, got cancer myself and was all of a sudden dealing with an existential issue that I didn't know what would happen. And I got operated on and uh, had what's called a radical neck dissection, which they in those days cut out half your neck and try and get rid of the cancer. It's forty nine years later, so I guess they got rid of the cancer, fortunately. But it made me realize during the three or four months that I that I was recovering, that basically I had to really start thinking about life totally differently. And when I got back to running the small family business that uh, that my brother and I ran for my father when he died. I basically sat down my brother and sister and said, look, I'm gonna make sure this business is set up so that it can support you and we'll have people here to operate. But basically, from now on, the two of you will make the decisions. And I'm, even though I'm the trustee of the estate, I'm not going to be involved in the decision-making. I'll just do what the two of you tell me. And I learned a, a tremendous lesson there. I made that decision because I didn't know if I'd be around. But once I did that, I unlocked the the problems that come up in a family that lead to great difficulties in running the family in later years, because I suddenly had uh, given the power of the family to make its own decisions. And it was an amazing unlock that I learned about uh, that I carried through the rest of my business career through the decades, because if you give the power to the people you 're partners with and you depend on the fact that you can manage the people you can do great things that 's the way we ran our well today we call them family offices in those days, there were three young kids trying to run dad 's little business as time went on and and uh, we started achieving large successes. We never forgot that principle throughout the rest of the life of my sister and my brother, who are gone now, we were able to maintain that. And when I had my first really major setbacks in business, they could have been very unhappy and angry and accused me of stupid decisions and lost a lot of their money. And they never did that. They would just tug me and uh, basically say, let's go on. You're sort of the business leader of the family, and you're making the decisions, and we're supporting you. And if you can capture that ability within a family environment, you can do great things. But to do it, it starts with the father and the mother. And they have to be mentors to their kids. Because you can't go out and make a great fortune and just turn around and hire your lawyers and your tax attorneys and your accountants. And then you gift the, you gift the money to the kids. The money's the least important. Training the kids how to use business judgment is the most important.
0: Do you think those lessons would have come through in the same way, would have been learned in the same way, but for the adversity you're experiencing, but for the situation you and your siblings found yourselves in, relatively young, both your parents gone, business to run, and then shortly thereafter, you faced with an existential a uh, life-threatening crisis potentially you weren't sure you were going to come back from. Do those, do those lessons still happen, or, or are those points of adversity, do they have a direct causal relationship with those lessons?
1: Well, I heard two questions in there, so let me answer the first question one way and the second question the other. Do those adversities still happen? Yes, they happen to all of us. If you as a human being think you can live life without tragedy, I don't know how to do it. Uh, and I I know of no human being that's ever done it. So the question is, when you have those tragedies, how are you going to survive them? Some of us have them young, some of us have them older, some of us, but we all have them. I think that the most important thing a parent can do is to train and to give their kids the ability to deal with the tragedies, to accept the failures, but to go try, try whatever it is. I don't care what your passion is, what your interests are. Go try and achieve, make something. And when you fail, the parents should be there to dust you off and pick you back up and not say, oh my God, this was so stupid. Don't ever do this again. Or how could you lose that money? Or how could instead support, be a mentor,
0: help? And it sounds like in your case- With your parents gone, your siblings took up that mantle.
1: They did indeed, but it was the parents that taught the kids how important that the family is because, you know, the support to to do this stuff starts at home. And it's, you know, there's a lot of hackneyed phrases about all that stuff, but uh, it happens to be true.
0: And with a family and and particularly a a family office or family-owned business, quite often you have blurred lines between organizational thinking, family thinking, uh, business relationships, family relationships. Do you think the same types of philosophies you're describing, often born out of uh, adversity here in a in a family situation, do you think they apply to organizational thinking as well?
1: Oh, without question. I think that to think you can build an organization, and I, I like Many of us uh, who are interested in giving back have been on a multitude of charities, have built a multitude of businesses, and have been involved in a multitude of different kinds of organizations. But all of these organizations get tested to the limits at one time or another. It's really up to the leadership, which is usually a board of directors of some type or a board of management. It's up to them to be able to steer these organizations tragedy befalls them and that's how you really get tested and we've all seen a number of our corporate institutions in the last decade that have fallen by the wayside because they had a board of directors that were all pals and then loved the board of directors position but when faced with tragedy uh, or uh, enormous adversity were not up to the task and these were major institutional corporations and I'm sure all of you could pick your favorite uh, name uh, and name them. But the failure would often be blamed on a CEO or whatever. The true failure were the board of directors. They were either incompetent or incapable of directing the organization so that it could continue on its way, it could learn from its mistakes. And today they're either not in existence anymore or shadows of their former self.
0: I know you've served on a number of board of directors that have navigated any number of issues. Does going through adverse business circumstances with that group of people, whether it's a management team or a board of directors, is that an opportunity to strengthen those relationships? and how how important are those relationships or the need to to hold each other accountable? Do you find that those adverse circumstances are they are they helpful to forging that future success?
1: Well, I'm philosophically wrapped around the core of a concept, which is you become successful through adversity. I don't think I know anybody that became successful because they just woke up one morning, got lucky, and stayed lucky. Because if you wake up one morning and you get lucky, it's going to be pretty tough to stay lucky. It just doesn't happen that way. So I believe what happens is you try you pursue a goal, you take the path less taken or the road less taken, and you make your mistakes. You learn from your mistakes. You pick yourself back up. You go on and you try and do it better the next time. It's the old story of when you get bucked off a horse when I was young and we were horseback riding. My mother used to say to me, get back on the horse. And these are the stories you you read about and you know about. But I think that's how a society continues to improve, an organization continues to improve, and an individual continues to improve. Andy Grove talks about that. I I
0: don't recall which book it was, but he talks about many organizations, their solutions for addressing often existential challenges to their business wind up becoming the greatest strengths. And I know you and I have talked about that in the past and both uh, on a business front and a life front. Can you talk about an instance in your life where you you had to pivot, you had to adjust to what was going on to your life, difficult circumstances, and it wound up becoming a great strength because you you did have that adaptation?
1: I would slightly change what you're saying and say, uh, of the dozens of companies I've started in my lifetime... There's not one of them that I'd have realized how hard it was going to be, would I have done it? And I look back on it, and I think about, you know, many didn't make it, but of the number of companies that we've been able to build, some, you know, a number of billion-dollar businesses that have gone on to be international successes from scratch, I look at all of them and realize every single one of them was born out of adversity. I think of... Uh, the uh, general in the late 1800s, Klauswitz, who said no battle plan ever survives its first contact with the enemy. Well, I'd love to paraphrase that and say there is no business plan that survives its first contact with the marketplace. So if that's the secret of business, meaning every business plan will fail, you write your business plan to think through the process. You try and make it as best you can And then you launch your business and you are going to immediately find that what you want to do, you can't. The way you thought you could do it, you won't be able to. And the competition you thought you had will probably be quite different than what you in reality will find in the marketplace. So if you are comfortable with understanding those precepts, then you can go out and start businesses and be an entrepreneur because you're comfortable living in that kind of a world. And there are a lot of people, I would say, engineers can't live in that world because if that happened, their bridges would fall down. Doctors can't live in that world because otherwise they'd give you surgery, cut you open, and immediately you'd die because they didn't know what the hell was going on. So there are certain professions that that will not work in. But if you happen to want to be in the profession of business and you want to start businesses and be an entrepreneur as opposed, which is what I selected as my profession, as opposed to working for someone else or being a CEO or being a CFO or whatever, then I would suggest to you that that's far more the reality you'll find yourself in than not. And I don't know that, uh, I did not read uh, Andy Grove's book. I did read the book on uh, how he handled the prostate cancer, and I certainly uh, respected the way he went about that. So I I, I embraced his philosophy there. I'm not sure I understand the philosophy business, so I'm not an expert on that. But that's my philosophy of how I would look at the answer to that question.
0: So I I really like that because it comes back to essentially what, what you mentioned at the outset of our conversation here. But if you enter into every path that you take in life and say, I'm going to fail, it's not it's not if i fail it's not afraid oh what if, what if i fail it's you're going to fail your your success then is predicated upon how you're able to adapt to these interim failures and ultimately find long-term success
1: if you know you're going to fail let's say you're you're a great tennis player and you're going to play uh, in the 70s and 80s you're going to play <clears throat> Yvonne Lendl you're going to fail he's going to beat you some games but if you figure out why you failed, why did you miss the shot, why did you lose that particular set, then you could beat Yvonne Lendl. But if you go in there believing I can't beat Yvonne Lendl, then you're doomed. In other words, it's okay to have failures. Learn why you failed, but then be willing to go back at it. In business, uh, when we when i doing my mentoring with the uh, Our younger CEOs, I tell them learn to pivot. When the time comes that what you have won't work and you've been beaten up, you have to learn to pivot and go in a new direction. To those that can't, they will fail. But at the end, the only time you truly fail is when you give up and walk away. And on that note, do you
0: think that it's important to talk about failures, mistakes, what have you, in the context of of risk taking for for young people. I mean, one of the one of the reasons you, you talk about we protect young people from the potential of experiencing pain, adversity, what have you. I think part of it is is this promotion of an idea of sort of a, a binary construct of success. Either you know you go out there and you make a lot of money, and whether you're going to be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, a laborer, uh, or an entrepreneur, a business person. You know, it, it seems quite often that there are sort of binary notions of what success looks like, what good looks like, and what failure looks like, what mistakes look like. How important is it, in your opinion, for a society that wants to ostensibly embrace embrace, you know, the the growth of the maker class, the entrepreneur class that can guide the type of society that you're talking about? How important is it to to embrace these kind of constructs, to promote these constructs?
1: I think it's everything. I, I philosophically don't believe the way I see a lot of uh, families raising their kids today, at an extreme, what you see is the kind of problem that we've seen recently about uh, successful families that uh, basically bribe their bribe schools to to take their kids and try and cook up a curriculum vitae that, that that's false. Apparently, uh, those uh, families that did that basically didn't quote-unquote hurt other people. But when you hear that kind of statement, I think to myself, you know who they hurt? They hurt their children. When their children find out their parents had to bribe somebody so they could go to the right school, there is no right school for you if you're the child and you got to go get an education and learn how to be successful in life. Boy, if you have parents that are cooking the books like that, to protect their children that's to me how you set yourself up for failure let the kid go to the school where he can get in and let the kid study what his passions about what he wants to go do or she wants to go do and then help them as they go forward but to try and take the roadblocks in life to take the bumps out of the road you know basically pave the road and forget to train the child This this is where our society, in my opinion, will find great failure over the next decade or two if they don't stop and think about it.
0: I'd like to go back and ask you about this connection between painful experiences and personal growth, clearly being, being faced with cancer shaped your outlook on the world, shaped your outlook on how you approach both family life and work life. Have you found a correlation between the extent of pain in a circumstance and the depth of a, of a lesson or the growth that comes out of that?
1: Yeah, I think that, that the thought, especially at 26 when I first encountered it, that you could be dead tomorrow makes you realize that if, if you want to achieve anything, if you want to be good, you really have to start coming up with a philosophy and start thinking about how you want to live your life. And when I lay in the hospital bed between my two operations and I I thought about, you know, I took stock, okay, who was I, young kid, 26 years old, if I died tomorrow, what did I achieve? What had I done? And I realized all I ever did was get out of school and do business. And I had friends, they were all in the business. I had uh, interest, it was all in the business. Uh, What great book did I read? What Broadway play did I enjoy? What trip did I go? What uh, charity did I help with? I had none of those things. I was just flat down trying to run as hard as I could and work as hard as I could. And I realized I hadn't achieved much of anything. So I made a promise to myself laying in that hospital bed that night that I would learn from this. I was no longer going to live my life that way. I'd faced or perhaps was facing the end of my life. I didn't know in those days, because I said earlier, they just didn't have the kind of medicine that we have today. And so I said, I'm going to try and live a balanced life. And I worked out a little personal philosophy then. It was sort of what I call the troika, uh, be a good father, be a good member of society and be a good husband. If you can get those things balanced properly, be good at what it is that you wish to pursue. For me, it was business. And if you do those things and you try and have those balances, I created a life mantra that I went on to live for the next 50 years. Lo and behold, it came from thinking in bed one night that I was going to die. So there's an example, I guess, for me personally of how I used adversity to learn from it changed my life. And I wound up having, I think by my measurement today, a lot of success as a result.
0: And it's interesting because I experienced a similar brush with death, but in a different way. Obviously, we lost Samantha, my my sister or daughter, five years ago. I know for me personally, experiencing that pain was like anything I'd ever, uh, I ever even knew existed before. But it's it's set up an appreciation for life and appreciation for what it means to, to have relationships, to exist, um, to be grateful. And it's, it's really, you know, as, as terrible as that pain has been for me, it's set up an incredible appreciation for everything. And I know it's, it's a difficult subject to discuss, but it's a unique pain. You, you once said it's a terrible club that, that, uh, that nobody wants to be a part of. But I know for you and I both, it's allowed us to connect with people on a much deeper level. Can you, if you're willing, talk about how that how that's affected your, your growth and development some 45 years after uh, you were laying in that hospital bed thinking you were going to die?
1: Uh, yeah, it is a very difficult subject even for me today. Losing a child is a word I'll steal from you, a disfigurement of the family. And there is nothing that can, there is no way you can handle it. Every human being uh, is going to have to handle it differently. And I can't tell you or anybody else how to, how they're going to have to take that path in life. For me, it almost destroyed me. But as time went on, I got some wonderful advice. One was from a book from Viktor Frankl which uh, I think you're the person that suggests I read that book and I read it. And it basically said that you must not try and run from the pain. You have to run towards it. You have to embrace it. You have to own it. And you also have to find the grace in life. If you can find a reason for living, there is no pain. You can't survive. But you can't do it unless you come up with a philosophy with a way to go about doing it. And so for me, I have used that tragedy and try and said every day, I want to find I want to find some beauty, I want to find some grace. I can find it through giving it, I can find it through observing it. But do do something every single day of your life that reaffirms your humanity along the way as this unfolds these years have unfolded since Samantha's died i have had the pleasure of strangers coming up to me and saying i lost a child also i've gone to others and said the same thing it is this invisible club that i never knew existed and it it has surprised me to realize how many of my contemporaries have lost children. Calling a friend of mine, Sam Zell, on the phone one day, and, and uh, we've been friends for 40 years, and for the last 30 years, Joey is, has been his, his aide and uh, assistant, and uh, she, answered, she called me on the phone one day and said, you know, I didn't know Samantha died. And then she proceeds to tell me about her daughter who died. And I said, you know, and you wind up getting these conversations. But from them, you learn that, as I said earlier, the other side of tragedy is humanity. So in my opinion, tragedy is something you have to embrace and hold the pain to you. Where it becomes destructive and can totally kill you is just if you try and run away from it. So run to it, embrace it, and look. For the grace notes of life, look for humanity, look for love. Look, at least that's the way I've tried to do it in my life. And, and uh, I don't know whether it's working or not, but I'm still here. So, since I'm still here, I assume it's working. Very
0: grateful for that. It's, it is remarkable. I've had a number of similar situations in which I'm able to connect with, with siblings that lost their siblings at a young age or just families that, um, have experienced similar terrible tragedy to ours. And the ability to offer comfort to somebody who's going through something so uniquely terrible has been, you know, it is, it's a, it's a strange blessing to be able to, to give comfort in that situation. And it's, it does seem as though it sets up the opportunity to connect. How has, your ability to connect as you've gotten older, you've gone through a variety of different adverse circumstances in business and life, you know, health, familial, otherwise. Do you feel that that has deepened your ability to connect with other people? And if so, how?
1: Without question, it it has. But from some of the adversity that I've had, uh, some we've shared uh, on this podcast, I've learned that uh, you should not be frightened Of sharing your opinions, of being direct. But you have to live in the now, as uh, Eckhart Tolle says, if you want to be happy. Uh, You can't live your life thinking of uh, being fearful of the future any more than you can live your life being angry at the past. If you live in the now and you can share your opinions honestly with people, and you're comfortable with the fact that, you know, a lot of people won't agree with you, a lot of people will agree with you. But then you can you can enjoy what comes to you day by day. And that enjoyment uh, not only is exhilarating from a life standpoint, it allows you to appreciate. And as you become appreciative, you can deal with a lot more adversity than not. I think that at the end of the day, for me, my successes literally have come from my ability to take the bad things and the tragedies of my life and learn from them and to to enable them or enable me to go out and achieve my goals in a far more uh, efficient fashion.
0: It's funny you mentioned efficient fashion, but uh, I think something else you point out is the importance of living in the now. I've been fortunate enough to work with you on a number of things, and the joy that you take in doing what you do and putting deals together, it's its often palpable, and it's something that I admire and, and learn from still, because it's easy to get caught up in what happened yesterday or what's going to happen tomorrow. And wanting uh, particularly in a business environment, wanting outcomes so badly that you 're just so focused on the outcome you're not you 're not listening to your environment or it strikes me that you're you 're at one with the universe and uh, uh, really going with the flow, and yet you 're still you 're still putting the deals together that you have a vision for. Is that something you 've always been blessed with, or is that has that come with time? And how uh, how has that been educated over time?
1: I, I think it's come with time. When I started, I had no idea whether I'd be successful at it or not. I just started doing it, and I realized that it all revolved around my desire to really be a teacher. But I couldn't get a teaching certificate, so that wasn't going to be something I would do. But I realized that there are lots of ways to teach. And so I decided that I would be willing to mentor younger people, young CEOs that would be would they wanted to start a business, or young teams that wanted to start a business. And I also realized that uh, I had to have a system, and the system always revolved around a construct of I don't really care what business area it's in, but the key to the system is back the right people. Back something you're passionate about and that you find exciting about and that you think is fun. And that was the way I started. And I got lucky. And then, of course, as I said, I've been unlucky too. But I would say probably, and this may sound shocking, but the single most important key to success, but you can't get lucky if you are staying home watching television, you got to be out playing in traffic. You got to be taking that road less traveled, that I, I call it the road less traveled, off of a book from the 80s, The Path Less Taken. So, so. And it's a theme throughout literature and poetry from Robert Frost. Frost. On, yep. If you do something you're passionate about, if you do something that's fun, if you do it with people you like, Life can be joyful. You can live in the now and you can withstand the adversity and the tragedies that are going to come your way if you're going to be a human being. You can't protect yourself against that, but you can learn to try and have your balance when it comes. Learn from your mistakes and uh, I call it monetizing. Learn how to monetize your mistakes. In fact, there's a little story about that. I I was. Uh, I went to Boston, had dinner with Sumner Redstone uh, in the uh, late '80s, and uh, we were both. Uh, both of us had companies in the uh, movie theater business in the United States. I didn't know him. I picked up the phone and called him. We certainly knew of each other, but he was very successful at the time. And we went out to dinner, and we get to dessert. And he says, well, Alan, you know, I'm really happy that you came here, and I certainly enjoyed having dinner with a nice young man like yourself. What is it you want? I said, I didn't want anything, Sumner. I just wanted to meet you. He said, well, that's really nice, but is there anything I can help you with? I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. What's that? I said, Sumner, I'd love to know how you became so successful. And he said something to me that I never forgot. He said, every time I made a mistake, Ellen, I learned how to go out and make money from it. And that is certainly a, a man who became a multi-billionaire and one of the most important businessmen of the 80s and 90s. And I never forgot that story because it, I, I didn't think of it at the time, but that's literally what I've done since that time and that's what I was doing then. I love that love that story.
0: And in fact I've I've heard that before and is, is one of my inspirations to kind of uh, explore this path. But it strikes me that what you just described there is the exact same notion in navigating really, you know, personal pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain in that sense of don't don't run from it, embrace it. Right. I, I think that's something we've talked before about which is if you run from the pain, you're always going to be running from it. If you run from your failures,
1: you cement them as failures. And they're, they're failures only if you allow them to be failures. As I said, you only truly fail when you give up. So let's say you, you, you go out and you invest a lot of money and uh, it doesn't work. Well, do you just give up and say, oh, I failed? Well, that's what I call snapshot analysis. If you want to take a snapshot picture with your phone today, they used to call it snapshots. But you want to take a a picture at any given moment and make an analysis from that. All of us are failures all the time. But if you want to say today, this is the way this looks this moment, that doesn't mean it have to look that way next week, next month, next year. But it will sure as hell look just like that if you give up that, that time you took the snapshot.
0: Now, it's it's one thing to say that, um, but we often have these little voices in our minds that are in there confirming that you know the snapshot is right and you screwed up. How do you quiet those voices, that psychotic brain, as Tolly says?
1: Well, I don't know the answer to that because I'm not a psychiatrist. I do know that we all need support systems. The best place to get the support system is from the family. If you can't get it from the family, go out and find a business partner. Go out and find a wife. Go out and find a husband. That will help you with that. Because sometimes the, uh, the tragedies you have are just overwhelming. They're not overcomable quite often by themselves. Now, I'm not talking about mental illness and that kind of, I'm just talking about the general everyday functioning that we have to deal with. Obviously, these issues, uh, bipolarity and depression and alcoholism and drug addiction and all the kinds of things that pervade our society, those all exacerbate what I'm talking about. So I'm not trying to make a generalization about all people in all situations. I'm really sharing with you my own personal philosophy of believing you need adversity, you need to learn from it, you need to learn how to make it successful for yourself or in business, how to monetize failure. Because lessons learned are the invisible foundation of success. And a lot of people don't see it as such. They can see something as failure that in fact are a series of lessons they've learned not to repeat. Well, that's an invisible foundation you can build a business on or you can create an organization on. A friend of mine... uh, I talked about earlier, Sam Zell uh, and I were sitting around the dinner table one day, about yeah, 40 years ago probably, and we were just playing a mind game. It was lunch on a Saturday afternoon. I guess we were all a little bit bored, and I asked everybody around the table who was all, they were all very successful people, I said, name in one sentence the definition of your success, and then we would vote, see who came up with the best best definition. And I always embrace Sam's definition, which was, he who most narrowly defends, defines the true inherent risk in a transaction wins. And I love that. And I've used it as a mantra for raising my family, for looking after my business interests, because if you can define the inherent risk in what you're doing, you can be successful. And that goes to When you're a teenager and you decide to get in a car with somebody that's been drinking, there's an inherent risk there. Are you aware of it? Can you embrace it? Can you deal with it? And unfortunately, we've had dear friends uh, did just that, and they didn't survive the analysis, unfortunately, uh, or were seriously injured as a result. Whether it's raising your children to assess risk intelligently or to looking at a business and assess risk intelligently. Those are the things we need to teach and mentor people with because risk needs to be there for a society to grow, for an organism to grow. If it's not there, I think the society becomes weakened and atrophies over time. Sam actually has a, a great uh,
0: part in his autobiography where, where he describes that that notion uh, in a deal that didn't work out. I think he it, it says it in the book, but something like uh, $40 million lost in the deal. And he considered his success because he narrowly defined that's what he was putting to risk. And he didn't lose any more than what he thought he was risking in that scenario. And so he successfully analyzed that risk. It's an interesting way to... To think about uh, to think about risk taking, so then it's not it's not so much what if I fail fail. It's have I properly analyzed the risk here, the downside potential, or what this instance of uh, a mistake or or something not working out looks like.
1: Well, and and I firmly believe to that point that whether it's Sam or anyone else that's been successful in business, we have to have a system. So let's suppose just. I don't know what Sam was thinking when he said that, but let me just give you an example of that. Let's suppose Sam has $400 million to invest, and he decides to invest it in 10 deals. Each deal costs $40 million. That's what he's going to risk. He assumes that of those 10 deals, he'll make uh, be successful in five of them. Three of them, he'll lose the, the $40 million. And maybe one or two of them are home-run success. Well, if you do the math on that, that's a system. And if he can make that work, and you don't lose more than the $40 million three times, you have a chance to make a lot of money. So I can see how in that instance, if your system is working, you lose $40 million in a deal and you say, good, the system is working. Or you could do snapshot investing and go, oh my God, I lost $40 million. I'm a failure. I'm going to give up.
0: And you're an operator, you're an investor, or or just really a, a human being Going through life dealing dealing with what you deal with, it's easy to be reactionary. It's easy to go from from one stimuli to the next. A lot of the philosophy that that we're talking about right now it seems to me really really requires a lot of intention. How do you how do you separate yourself from from the stimuli of the of the moment or of the adverse circumstance that you might be addressing? and give yourself the space to think about it in, in what's really a very intentional, philosophical manner.
1: I think that you need to understand that, that in, as you go through life, nothing is permanent. If you want to create a partnership, let's say, to assume that that partnership will remain a partnership for the next 40, 50 years isn't a realistic assumption. Consequently, if you enter the partnership knowing over time Partners get old, partners get divorced, partners have children, new partners supersede old partners. Basically, nothing will remain the same. And if you are comfortable managing the process of understanding partnership involvement, you can be successful. But if what you try and do is enter into a partnership that's going to be defined by an agreement, And you are going to be uh, rigid and say, this agreement protects me. I control the partnership and it will always operate this way without any maneuvering room or any appreciation of the evolution of how these things work. Then you can get reactionary. And instead of dealing with intention, you wind up with dealing with emotion. And then you can wind up making bad decisions. So my approach is to realize I have to learn to be flexible in any partnership I create because it's made up of human beings. And human beings are going to get sick. They're going to die. They're going to get divorced. They're going to do things. Their interests will change. And what I may have made today will not last that way in that structure. I will eventually have to evolve, learn to evolve with the process. Bake it into what you do. Understand that you're going to have to look and plan for and embrace these changes. That's the way I approach it.
0: And, you know, we we talk a lot about uh, philosophy being the pursuit of principles upon which uh, to base your life. Certainly you have have a lot of principles. A lot of what we're talking about are, are systems that you've adapted over time. That adaptation quite often has is, is happened through adversity, but you have a set of personal habits that you engage in as well that I think really keep you balanced. Can you talk about talk about those and, and how you develop them over time, your meditative practice in particular?
1: In the 80s, I had uh, developed a very bad back, which I can't tell whether my bad back and bad hearing necessarily came out of my military experience in the 60s, but I got to the point that I was incapacitated. The doctors had said, we should operate on your spine. And uh, I just, I, I did not enjoy the thought of going back into the hospital and get another operation. I also have a fundamental belief that medicine is uh, is an art form and not a science and uh You know, you can get lucky and you can get off the table and sometimes you don't get off the table. So I generally try and stay out of surgery if at all possible. And I was looking for a solution. I'd gone to a number of doctors and one day I came across the article in the probably the local newspaper talking about stop by this hospital this evening and we have an open class on meditation. And I thought, I wonder what that is. So I went to the class. I was quite taken with this little one-hour class I took about meditation. So I said, I think I'll start it. I think I'll try. Because the principle of meditation is that we as humans store the pressure of the day in our bodies. If you don't expiate it in some fashion, what happens is you, you start storing it. Now... Quite often, the places you store it in are in your sinus areas. Ergo, you can give yourself migraine headaches. And in your lower spine. And so what happens is you compress your blood vessels and your muscles. It compresses your blood vessels. It restricts your blood supplies. And I began to realize and read books on it. And and soon I realized that, God, maybe I'm incapacitated because I'm doing it to myself. Wouldn't that be funny? I thought it was some fundamental thing that was wrong with me. I mean, I knew I had a bad back, uh, but so I started meditating. And as the years went by, the pain went away. I started becoming more comfortable on many different levels. And so over the last uh, 34 years, I've meditated almost every day of my life. And in addition to the meditation I like that. And then that evolved into deep breathing exercises. And then that evolved further over time into uh, yoga. Now, I didn't, this is all self-taught and self-developed. Uh, so today I have about a hour and 20-minute program I do every morning once I get out of bed and drink a glass of water. It is a mantra of mine that allows me to and has allowed me to live a relatively pain-free life over the last 35 years. Obviously, if I pick up a heavy object, I can incapacitate myself again because, as I said, I know I have fundamentally, medically, a bad back. But I've become convinced that if you develop personal habits, deep breathing, meditation, um, yoga, stretching, You can put together a program if you believe it, uh, as I do. And it has been very successful in my life. One of the kinds of things that I've found uh, has been very successful for me. And by the way, I'm not suggesting because it works for me. It has to work for other people. I think really this is an exploration everybody has to go on. But not everything can be fixed by drugs or surgery. And I think back in the 60s, there was a show called, there was a Broadway play uh, called, a musical called Hair. And there was a great line in there, you are what you eat. And I think that's very true. But if you eat properly, you maintain, you take the time to let your muscles relax in your body. And you learn, you can learn how to deal with pressure. And you approach today living in the now with intention rather than reaction. I happen to be married to a dentist, and uh, uh, my wife does not uh, necessarily agree with me because she has a medical protocol background. And I have a brother-in-law who's a plastic surgeon. And uh, I can't say that they're totally in agreement with me. They, they, They didn't live a lot of their lives that way. So this works for me. It doesn't necessarily work for everybody else. And it certainly doesn't work for everybody in my family.
0: Do you feel that developing those personal habits create the space that have allowed you to be more thoughtful about navigating pain, adversity, uh, challenges in your life? Yes,
1: of course. One of the first things I do when I sit down every morning to meditate is I take about, uh, while I'm deep breathing, I take three, four, five minutes just to clear my mind while the mind is a terrible thing to waste and to lose, it's also a very active thing. You can certainly tell that if you just try and start remembering your, your dreams. I started that exercise 40 years ago and a lot of us really don't realize they dream. So one of the techniques that I started with is I'd lay in bed and wouldn't get out of bed until I could remember one dream. And uh, the first, I think, probably month I tried doing this, I couldn't remember a dream. And so I said, well, oh, this is stupid because if I keep doing this, I'm never getting out of bed. So, But finally it started to work, and then one day I remembered a dream, and I was shocked. And so I said, okay, if I can remember one, okay, now I want to remember two. Ultimately, I think I got up to the, the height I've been is around 15. But it's a practice. It's like a meditation if you can learn to remember your dreams, it also is an insight as to where your brain's going. But that means then you can control your brain. It's hard to, but you can control it. You can talk to it. Well, if you take five minutes every morning and say, I want my brain to quit talking to me. I don't want to think about anything. I'm going to think about breathing. And it, it can't be done overnight. But as you do that, you start to get into a reflective or a meditative state. And then you, over time, it's practice. You can then go into a meditation. And you can meditate five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. I I know somebody that meditates an hour and a half. I think that that's a little long because a lot of us uh, have an active life. uh, So we need balance. But over time, I've been able to put together a program, as I said, it's about an hour and 20 minutes long every morning, of how I do my program. You really have to want to stay at it. But if you can stay at it, it can have an amazing, well, it hasn't had an amazingly positive impact on my life. And it's allowed me the freedom to help what I call living in the now, or as you said, Eckhart Tolle calls it because that's from his book, Living in the Now, which I think is a wonderful book for people to read. I'm not sure I agree with everything Eckhart Tolle has to say, but it's certainly the idea of living in the now and being situationally aware. Be aware of what's going on around you, who's around you, what you're doing, and you will make more informed Better informed and more realistic decisions, and make better judgments. In my opinion,
0: so it's it's funny you say uh, be aware because as as I was thinking about our, our conversation now, and as we uh, uh, to borrow the quote you you mentioned at the beginning of our time, um, you know, learn about life looking back. It strikes me that uh, a common theme throughout is this notion of awareness or or of listening, and so it's it's the listening to mentors who are willing who are there willing to help you listening to your body and what it's telling you being aware of when the when the pain's setting in of when you're um when it's particularly difficult to to go and face life as a as a young person and certainly I've I've been there when you've got uh you've got your big dreams and you're going in in search of them and it's it's easy to be hard-headed it, you know was there a time in your life when you kind of evolved out of that and developed this appreciation for for listening, whether it's to the universe or the people around you or your body or uh, and awareness. And how, how did that come to pass?
1: Well, I think that most young people have a level of arrogance about them and and certainty in varying degrees. And uh, I'm sure I was no different when I was young. In fact, I know I wasn't. But I think what happens is as you go out into life the reality of the of the marketplace of life uh, acts like sandpaper and it forces you out of that environment eventually in my opinion and if you you can learn from that you can learn how how to improve yourself how not to do that because being arrogant being self assured being confident that you're always right, these are all definitions, in my mind, of a fear factor. The fear that you're going to make a mistake, the fear that you're going to be wrong. And so you tend to say, I'm in control, I'm doing it right, I know the answers, and and I'm not going to listen to anybody else. Well, that is a road that many of us have traveled in varying degrees, and uh, life teaches you along the way that you're destined to Make bigger mistakes faster uh that way, but again, it's part of life, so you simply make your mistakes and get just your, pick yourself back up again and get on with it. I'd say to anyone that wants to be successful at anything in life, it's a sort of simplistic statement, but you gotta stay at it. You can't give up because again, I said you know when you give up is the only time you ever fail and for for
0: somebody that is just in the midst of a failure, now it's easy. It's easy to to listen to other people say that. It's really tough when your when your company failed, or you lost a lot of money, uh, or you didn't get into the school that you wanted to, and uh, or your relationship is falling apart. Uh, what do you say to somebody who's going through? that's at adverse circumstances in the moment. I mean, is it? what's the practice, what's the advice when when you've got, say, a, a young CEO who's lost, lost his baby, uh, so to speak, with a company?
1: I don't have a simple answer for that. I don't think, you know, there's, you can give a flippant answer or you can give you, well, there's six reasons, there's six ways to handle that and you should do all six things and then, you know, take an aspirin and call me in the morning. I think this is a reality of the world we live in if you want to go achieve and be successful. I think when failure comes, it's terribly painful. I think it's up to everybody to to basically deal with it as best they can. But having said that, I would certainly say that when you failed, you need somebody around you you respect that says the things we're talking about. Just stay at it. This too shall pass. You know, let's learn from the mistakes you made and let's go on. Don't give up. Don't make, don't do snapshot analysis of this mistake and assume, oh my God, you failed. And I think it's important then to seek out people that will explain these things to to a person. And most of my peer group has been, who has been very successful in life would say the same thing. And I've watched them, as I have done, mentor young men and women with happiness to help them appreciate and move through life after either tragedy or mistakes. When I said, I was talking about when Samantha died, my life was over, so to speak, until I could learn that if you can find a reason for living, anything is you can handle anything. But find that reason. Uh, The reason is inside of you. It's in your heart. But there is a desire upon most people fundamentally to give back, to help, to reach out, help other people. I think that's a fundamental principle of humanity. And I think I've learned that in times of my tragedies and, and also my failures. And I think because people have done that, i have been able to go on and be successful and of course if that's the way you feel then you want to reach out and do that and help other people behind you and if that's if i'm truly correct in this analysis then this is how you create a great society because there's no body that can do it by themselves in my opinion that's great it it really seems like it's
0: the moments of pain it's the moments that uh that don't quite kill you that you realize how powerful it is to to really rely on other people on that topic is something that you and I have discussed in the past is is the power of vulnerability and I know this is something that I think struck both of us in losing samantha but but how sharing sharing what you're going through, whether it's a, a personal tragedy a, a professional challenge, opens you up to be able to make those connections whether it's with a mentor or with uh, or with somebody that's that's walked a, a similar path of uh, pain before you um, how important do you think is the, the vulnerability in, in being able to forge these types of connections either professionally or personally?
1: I think it's critical to be having a not only a successful business or a successful life or a successful society or a successful organization. I mean, I think you have to do this. But I I fundamentally believe this is the way humanity is wired. There is sickness and disease and, and a lot of bad people in the world. But there are also a lot of wonderful people, and there are moments of great uh, synchronicity and beauty. And uh, I prefer to be an optimist, I guess. But uh, I believe that, at least in my life, the humanity is there, and then it's there for the taking. You have to observe it. You have to use it. You have to embrace it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the way I think of it. I think
0: it does. I think it does. And as a final question, I'd love to get your thoughts on something. We, we opened this discussion mentioning Nietzsche. Nietzsche has a quote in which he says that for his loved ones, for people he cares about, he wishes hardship because that's the only measure by which you can find what you're made of, who you are, how to get a measure of of self-worth, and how good you are. So, What's your thought on that quote? Do you think there's truth to that?
1: I think there's great truth to that, but it can really be a dangerous truth. Parents that uh, could misunderstand or abuse that understanding could make that into something that is uh, inimical, in my opinion, to the health of their Uh, their family members. But certainly, I think the whole thing we've been talking about this podcast is that without adversity, uh, without difficult times, I don't think you can learn. I don't think you can have success. And by learn, I mean learn about life. I don't mean you can certainly learn by reading a book and taking an examination and regurgitating on a test. That's not the kind of learning I'm talking about. I'm talking about developing practical humanistic skills that allow you to go out and achieve your goals in life.
0: So I guess then uh, another person we we both think highly of Victor Frankl had had a similar comment in which he said, you know, you don't go you don't go looking for suffering. There's enough of it in the world. It's going to find you. And so then, in, as, as far as children go, or or really training the next generation, it's about not necessarily wishing hardship upon them, but preparing them for for meeting that hardship and leveraging it as a as a methodology of evolving.
1: I think that's uh, absolutely correct. That's why I said that Nietzsche's uh, comment can be very dangerous. Uh, well, much of what he observed could be very dangerous. As we saw, it's twisted into some terrible ideology. Yes. So I would definitely agree with Viktor Frankl's comment there, don't go looking for it. It'll come to you. And and uh, when the time comes, hope that you have friends and family that will reach out and help you uh, and assist you. And, and certainly even strangers that uh, have become friends uh, over the tragedies we've lived through. So it comes to us all and we'll all have to deal with it as we find it but if we are people of character uh and and we have been i think raised well so to speak um, we'll prevail
0: are there any thoughts on dealing with adversity facing pain facing fear that you'd like to end with
1: not really i think we've uh, you know in the time we've had we've uh, sort of explored this subject at least from my perspective rather thoroughly
0: well then i uh, i appreciate you helping me kick off this project and uh, hopefully hopefully, many more to come. Thank you very much. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at what didn't kill you.com, and you can follow along at what didn't kill You on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.